Okay, hello everybody. Welcome back to Sustainable Success, the podcast. Today I'm talking to somebody from Australia, uh, Gary Knight. Uh, I've sort of followed off and on over the years. I first uh, listened to podcasts on Lawrence Neal's uh, Corporate Warrior at the time, and now it's Hit Business that he runs. And Gary had some very interesting insights about the way he does things. He's very methodical about the way he goes about things. He also challenges a lot of, uh, shall we say, conventional wisdom about some of the things. I know that you know, we might talk about that. At one point, he did an interesting experiment with eating at McDonald's, uh, which was interesting, because I, I, I'm gonna ask him about exercise, but I'm also gonna ask him his views on nutrition and whatnot. But to start with, I know that he and I share some commonalities in terms of favorite authors and, and, and occupational backgrounds. So I'll turn it over to Gary to just give us a little bit of his background. Uh, cheers. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, my background's uh, sort of all over the shop, but long, long story short is I used to be a high school teacher when I was very young. Uh, English and history were my disciplines. Um, I then left that after a few short years and went into the underground mines where I did an electrical apprenticeship, worked as a sparky for several years. Uh, then I sort of needed to get out of a tiny little mining town and see the world. So I ended up um, going to London where I ran my own personal training business for a couple of years, um, come back to Australia and then just ended up back in, in mining, but uh, in the drilling sector. Um, and then sort of in between that, uh, especially as my last few years in mining for the first time are wrapping up, I sort of started doing a YouTube channel and that's probably where uh, the high intensity community first sort of got wind of me. So just doing a couple of videos online, just talking about technique and, and my method, which again, rolled into the, the PT business overseas. And then every now and then I pop my head up and, and do a podcast uh, about such things and then go back to regular life. So uh, here I am popping my head up again. Well, cool. Well, it's good to have you. So for people who may be listening to this who are not familiar with acronyms like HIT, high intensity training or super slow or whatnot, um, maybe just when we talk about strength training, people think of weightlifting and whatnot. How would you describe uh, what you do, whether you use the term HIT, high intensity training as opposed to, or not necessarily opposed to, but as distinct from high intensity interval training, which more has become more mainstream and is more familiar. In what you do, how does it differ from conventional strength training, which I think is where you first started, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I pretty much just wanted to put on muscle and, and be yoked. Um, and my motivations have never been much more complicated than that. Um, as for method, like like every young man, uh, I sort of started training around sort of 18. Um, I'd done a little bit of circuit stuff as a kid, just in association with some of the sports I did, but nothing that was, you know, looking to build muscle. Um, and just when I went to uni, I got into strength training and I probably just did the regular old volume thing for the first uh, maybe two years, I think, at, at uni. And then after that, I sort of, I'd actually stumbled upon Mike Mentzer very early. So I'd read the book, but not really taken any of it in because I just didn't have the, uh, I just wasn't sensible enough, I guess, at the time. And, but by, by about my third or fourth year of training, I was sort of 
looking at protocols where the volume was a lot less. Um, and then, you know, probably from the age of 21, like I was doing sort of high intensity training the Mike Mance away um, without much experimentation. Um, and so, yeah, I think for the average person, when they hear the term HIT, they do think of high intensity interval training, um, which funnily enough is, is taking advantage of, of similar mechanisms in the body. It's just a kind of inefficient, poorly articulated way of doing it. So um, high intensity training is basically um, using intensity uh, in such a way that the exercise becomes more efficient and it just aims at building muscle mass um, in the most efficient way. That's sort of how I see high intensity training, but depending on what, what rider you're following or what guru you're following, um, there's a lot of, lot of scope there, a lot of derivation there. Um, for me at the moment, I, I'm sort of, I have my own kind of way of looking at it. That's probably it's, I mean, it's, it's a high intensity training workout like any other, but I call my method objective strength. So I have this hypothesis that uh, size and strength are sort of inexorably linked. And when you control for technique and volition, so the amount of effort you put in, um, strength becomes a very high or highly co corollary uh, indicator of underlying muscle mass. Um, and there's a sort of lot of science about size and strength that kind of can underpin that view. Um, and so everything I do in my method is about being as consistent as I can with my technique so that my, my data log can be used to, to make tactical adjustments over time where I'm using strength as the indicator of whether my protocol of training is uh, fruitful or a lack of strength uh, increases to say that my protocol of training isn't fruitful and it needs some adjustment. So I think what my work is and, and my views are with high intensity training is I'm trying to take it, I think, from what was something mapped onto sort of objectivist ideology and return it back to the realm of empiricism and science. So that's kind of a, it might be the same spirit in terms of the technique and, and the training protocols, but I think the language is, is much more bounded where sort of Mike Mentz's writings were almost, almost religious in some sense, the sort of here's the principles, do this, do this, do this. The way I tend to communicate it is, uh, let's apply the scientific method to lifting technique. Let's be hyper consistent in our technique, in our broader training protocol, in our broader nutrition protocol. Let's capture a set of data and let's react tactically to that data under the hypothesis that size and strength are linked together. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment or where I've been at for the, for the last few years. So just trying to um, convert high intensity training uh, into something a bit more uh, methodical, uh, a bit more science-based. And that's not to say that high-intensity training is not science-based, but I think just because of the way it was constructed in sort of axiomatic statements based on objectivism, it went down a certain path that I, I didn't really like. It just it was more philosophical, and I'm trying to treat it more like here's an experiment, here's how we build data, here's how we react to the data, that sort of thing. So if, I, if I'm understanding, I guess if you're going to be objective and use scientific, one of the things that you want to do is only manipulate one or 
you know, as few variables as you can. Otherwise, if you vary, if you do change three things and you get, you know, a different result, better or worse, it becomes very difficult to, um, you know, figure out which one is responsible for the change in result. So when you think of, of course, strength, what comes to mind is, and before we started recording, we talked about cadences and whatnot, but with strength, um, you have to have, your form has to be ultra strict to ensure that the increases in poundages or reps or time under load or reps or, or, or whatnot are truly based on actual strength increases uh, and not just skill acquisition, you know, uh, neurological efficiency, things like that. Uh, what, where do you think is, I, I, I'm not going to say I've come to the conclusion. I suspect, I have a lot of suspicions and I, I reserve the right to be full of beans, if you will, to use a, a milder term, that strength in itself is, is a difficult term to define really specifically, because what I see with clients is I see adaptations, some of which I would describe as psychological, i.e. at first they, they have difficulty with just working that hard and they eventually kind of get their heads around that. And, you know, they just perceive, and you talked about human volition being complicated. And then I think neurological efficiency, and then I think even things like tendons and ligaments and bones and whatnot getting tougher and I, I think of hype, actual hypertrophy is kind of being the adaptation of last resort. Would you, would you feel I'm barking up the right tree there in my thinking? No, I think your thinking was very clear and you, you did list off a, a big chunk of the main things that I think add what you'd call statistical noise to the studies of size and strength. Um, so one of the things with size and strength when you look at the research is untrained populations have very poor size strength correlations and what causes that is the fact that you know from their first assessment to their last assessment in the study that might go you know nine to 12 weeks uh, strength on paper is is going up incredibly rapidly but muscle mass is is barely shifting sometimes it just doesn't even move so for that, that initial period of, of training an untrained person, strength is just going through the roof, muscle mass isn't moving, and there has to be an explanation as to why those things happen. Um, most of what the scientists suggest are things like neuromuscular efficiency. So that's essentially an adaptation of the central nervous system uh, to coordinate all of your muscles better, to perhaps, you know, what you call rate coding, which is basically the nerve impulses to the muscle become more efficient and timed better. Um, another thing is just you're dealing with psychology. So trepidation is a big factor. So one of my theories about the really poor correlations in untrained populations is, is what I call the false baseline hypothesis. So we know as personal trainers that that first workout with someone who's not new to weight training uh, and not new to high intensity training with its, you know, demand for very strict uh, lifting technique, uh, their very first effort isn't their best effort. You know, they often pull up well short of their capabilities. And if that's happening in all these scientific studies that aren't even really supervised by people uh, 
with probably even average competence as trainers. You know, they're, they're basically nerds with, uh, with pen and paper, you know, instructing these people to exercise. Then all of those initial baseline attempts in these studies with untrained people uh, are going to all be false baselines. They're going to be far undershooting uh, what their muscles are capable of. And that throws a massive amount of noise in the data and what I found interesting is when, you know, reading all of these studies in detail, it's never mentioned. It's never understood. To me, to me as a trainer, it's absolutely obvious that that first session with people, they pull their punches. But no one in the scientific community has any conception whatsoever of that effect and, and how profound it is on their data. Um, so one of the things, uh, one of the examples I can give from my own personal training experience is a lot of the women, you know, that would come in uh we do say leg press and they they nail the cadence like i was able to teach it to them straight away teach them good form straight away leg press is a pretty simple exercise and often you know they would get like they'd use 50 kilos and they'd maybe get like 12 reps to failure with a, a four, 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 four cadence or 4040 cadence and then within six weeks they'd be up over 100 kilos with the same cadence now yes i back my method uh yes i back my routine um, but there's no way they were technically advancing that rapidly in, in muscle to, to be able to achieve that. What was happening is more than likely they, they could have, if we somehow like removed their brain and installed my brain with their body, I probably could have got, you know, 70 kilos for 12 reps, no worries. Um, and then so the progression over the six weeks would have been much less dramatic, much more normative. Um, and that's what's happening with studies of untrained populations. It's always a false baseline, I think. They just, everyone pulls their punches. And with people that are new to exercise, even across the 12 weeks, they're going to be inconsistent about their technique. They're going to be wildly inconsistent about their volition. And whether we call that sort of neuromuscular, it's sort of a combination between, you know, central nervous system development and just basic psychology, just this person is feeling their way through something that's new and novel and there's going to be inconsistency from week to week and that's going to taint your data set so that the relationship between size and strength uh, isn't as visible. Um, so I would say for new people, yes, the, the whole neuromuscular factor and coordination is a, is a big source of noise, um, which is why you see rapid strength increase but not rapid muscle increase. But what we know from the data is that for highly trained elite populations of, say, elite powerlifters and elite Olympic lifters, their correlations are like averaged out at something like 0.95. I've seen studies as high as 0.97, 0.98. And when you're saying size and strength go together, that kind of correlation is a slam dunk. And so my whole theory is kind of based on this science and, and what, I'm, what I'm finding is it's not so much that the specific techniques of elite powerlifters, you know, with a, with a one RM or one rep maximum attempt uh, is the best for correlation. It's the fact that these people have been training for 10, 20 years with the most optimized form so that their form all ends up pretty much the same. And their volition, the effort they put in, because they're probably the most competitive, most psychologically optimized people for such a sport, 
is, is absolutely maxed out. So they always deliver the same form when they do their one rep maximum attempts and they always deliver maximum volition when they do this. So from week to week, their 1RM is a very stable proxy and they can only increase their strength when their muscle mass comes up to support that, to allow that to happen. And that's what is shown in their data. So I, you're, I missed now. Are you referring to a population like power lifters, for example? Elite power lifters and elite Olympic lifters. Pe yeah. People that are at the top of their competitions, getting right. Olympic medals, winning world championships, their correlations are above 9.5. So they basically never increase strength without muscle mass moving at the same amount. It's like it's they're inexorably linked. And what I would suggest from that science is that, you know, when technique it's, it's, not, it's not the specifics of powerlifting technique. It's the meta factors of them being hyper consistent with their technique right. and volition, which produces uh, or right. lays bare that link between size and strength. And I, yeah, so when I, I th when, so let's say that you've got an untrained individual and, and, and actually before I ask my question, just a comment on something what you said, because of the factors that you named, as well as many other factors, I take almost, this is gonna sound cynical, all research in the field of strength training with so many grains of salt. I find that much of it is very poorly performed. Uh, there's survivorship bias, selection bias, uh, the, the, you know, six weeks or 12 weeks with untrained people, all these things, and, and often not controlling for, you know, uh, so many things, but often the, the tangent. So, so if I, I was to come in to see you, and I'm an untrained person, and so there's going to be a period of time where, you know, the early adaptations won't um, correlate right for various reasons at what point what would you expect as a client that you know we've gone past that let's call it a break-in period and now there should start to be a, a closer correlation would you expect that after a month after three months after six months or would that vary from individual to individual it would of course vary from individual to individual but what I would say is neuromuscular adaptation will run its course. Um, it's hard to say how quickly someone's, uh, I guess, skill at lifting uh, will come up close to, I guess, what their peak skill might be. But what I would focus on is getting them to achieve the technique and the cadence and the form as you prescribe it. And I think once you're at the point where they can consistently achieve consistent technique without too much intervention from you, uh, that's when you're in the territory of where the data is going to be more indicative of, of muscle size. Um, but you could probably write off those first six weeks easily as just most of the, most of the improvement will be neuromuscular. Um, and that's not to, to sort of, uh, be cynical about the whole process, but you have to always remember that like laying down new muscle mass is a very slow process. It's happening at a very small level of, of scale or of resolution. You know, it's, it's literally these tiny things we can only see with a microscope. Uh, 
right. getting built, you know, at a steady rate. So this idea that you can just sort of flood the body with muscle mass because you started drinking protein shakes and training hard uh, is definitely overblown. So building muscle is slow, even for those with the best gifts for building muscle. Um, and it's something you look at in sort of three month intervals. So I, I would expect to see, you know, noticeable physique, physique changes around the, the three month, the two to three month mark. Um, but before that, you're going to see strength just going through the roof and, and you'll see the data kind of like uh, it sort of starts to slow down. So you have that initial period. And it, for, for most of my clients, it seems like that first six weeks is where it just like bull out of a gate. And then after that, everything settles down a little bit. And it's like we improve a rep each week on each exercise. And then a couple of weeks later, we go up in weight. And then we go through double progression again. Um, and that's when, you know, you can start to, to rely on the metric a lot more. But again, it just comes down to how well you instruct the technique, how quickly the client picks up good technique. Um, but what I would say is, so looking at, at the scientific data, and I, I do appreciate your comments about how poor study designs are, how badly they're administered. Um, but I do sort of take that into account. One of the reasons why I'm, I'm very sceptical about the low correlations in beginners is for exactly that reason. You've got people training them that don't know what they're doing. The population doesn't know what they're doing. And that's why the data produces something that doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of the relationship between size and strength. Whereas in the populations where that person is an expert at strength training, that person is hyper consistent with strength training. Right. That person is giving their absolute best effort, whether the scientist knows it or not. Um, those people show something that makes sense. A bigger, a bigger muscle makes more strength. That's that to me is so obvious, but in untrained populations, that isn't so obvious because it's poor study design. It's chaos. Um, so on that point, I might bring up that, um, when you change the analysis technique for a lot of these studies of untrained populations, uh, the correlations can improve quite significantly. So there's such thing as between subject analysis versus uh, within subject analysis. So basically when it's a uh, between subject analysis, you're kind of just pulling all the data together and looking at what the averages are. Uh, but that doesn't count for individual difference. When you do a within subject, so you grab one person and isolate their changes, the correlations are actually much stronger. So you could take, uh, I think I, I pulled some of this together. If I remember my figures with between subjects, one study had a 0.19 correlation, which is terrible. That's basically saying strength and size have nothing to do with each other. But when you applied a within subject analysis method, those correlations were anything from 0.27 to 0.49, which is a much stronger point to start off with. So as I said at the start, uh, the average for untrained people was something like a 0.34. But if you're starting to get 0.49s, 0.5s with untrained populations, then that idea that size and strength go together starts on a much higher footing than it otherwise would. And that just came down to how you process the maths. So all of these things come into play with science and, and you need to kind of, you need to understand the art of exercise from a trainer's perspective to kind of realize what can happen in a scientific study, what can go wrong to add noise, because it's very, very hard to get a human being to, um, you know, perform with hyper consistency. And when the scientists themselves don't even understand that, that 
what should be a very obvious part of the scientific method, which is uh, controlling variables, they never seem to know how to do it. They never even seem to discuss how to do it. It's, it's sort of like amateur hour in the uh, physiology departments in some sense. Um, but it leaves clues. And like I said, in those populations that we 100% can say they are very consistent with their technique from years of practice and their volition spot on because they're, you know, aggressive SOBs that go for it. Uh, the correlation is laid bare. And so what I'm trying to do is, is kind of pivot from that, that fact about, uh, I guess, consistency of technique and volition. I'm trying to show you how you can achieve that in a sort of safer manner with the use of cadences and going to failure, you know, controlling for posture, path of motion, range of motion, speed of motion, going to failure, stability of your protocol design and your nutrition. If you put all those things together in a scientific way, you can build a data set um, that can point you in the right direction. Um, and that's sort of, that's where my head's at, I guess, at the moment. One of the things that I, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, I got an in-body tool, you know, the body composition works on bioimpedance. Yep. I, I people have different opinions on how accurate or not they are. I, where I've sort of landed is that they accurately measure what is happening, I think, at a given moment in time. The problem is that that given moment in time, things change very rapidly. In other words, if I put you on that machine now and I put you on it two hours later, it could give me and a very surprisingly different result. And I've always thought of muscle mass as, you know, you have this much muscle, but muscles I've come to realize are, are in some ways they're containers. They contain mm. more or less glycogen. And anybody who's done bodybuilding knows that, you know, the idea of peaking for a contest uh, and of course, other sports where they do things like carb loading and things like that is that if you can get more glycogen in your muscles for the, the day of the contest, your muscles will look bigger. But if you have too much glycogen in your muscles, you, the, you, bodybuilders will say you look smooth and you don't have any cuts. Whereas mm -hmm. if you have less glycogen and, and as such less water retention, because for every gram of glycogen, I believe you hold about three grams of water. So you can look cut, but you'll look small. So the same person, not only on an in-body tool, but even in a mirror or on a stage can look wildly different depending on how much water or glycogen that they're holding. And, and I don't know if you've ever read the stories about Arthur Jones would make a bet with bodybuilders that he would put an inch or two on their arms and just two workouts or something. And he would bring them down to Florida. And the first thing he would do is he would tell them they, that before they even did a workout, they had to do nothing for two days. They had to just rest. And the explanation, I don't know if you've read those old Ellington Darden books, was that because they had supposedly overtrained for years, that just taking two days off, he would measure them as soon as they got off the plane and measure them two days later before their workout and you know, they would have gained a quarter inch or a half an inch on their biceps. Well, when I look back on that now with the new information I have, I think, well, if you haven't been working out, you haven't been burning glycogen, if you've been relaxing and eating, 
presumably some carbs and whatnot, then yeah, your muscle will probably grow simply because of the fact that you have more glycogen than you did when you landed on the plane and overtraining may or may not really even be a factor in that. So all this preamble to ask a question, which is when muscle really can fluctuate pretty wildly based on glycogen and water content, and that actual true muscle mass gains are very small over a period of time, how do you sort of account for that sort of variable? I, I think when I think about my machine, I think it's like, I tell my clients, it's like I wanna measure your height, but you refuse to stand still. Mm. No, 100%. So I think for that, I mean, the, the word I would use is resolution. So you don't want to be neurotically putting your client on the in-body machine uh, three days a week after each workout, because all you're going to do is subject them to a lot of noise. Um, and they're going to get neurotic about small up and down changes that, like you said, can be altered pretty significantly by simply like diet amount of sugar, amount of water in the body, those kind of things. So it's important to understand uh, and be kind of humble about how well our tools and our metrics assess the body and pick appropriate times and resolution in which to assess those things. So if I'm you know, building up some training data about myself or about clients, I don't even really want to look at it with much attention outside of maybe every six to even 12 weeks. It's at the end of 12 weeks, I would sit down with their program and go, you know, what's happened here? Uh, where are we at? Are we forward? Are we backwards? Are we holding steady? And it's only at those kind of broader time scales would I, I pay any attention to things. And the same with an in-body scan. You know, it's probably more appropriate three to six months apart um, because, you know, you just need to allow a bit of time for these things to happen. Um which is why I guess I've always focused on, you know, can I increase reps from week to week with good form, increase weight as per double progression tells us to, and just let that tick along. And if that's happening, I, I just sort of stay calm and follow the course. Uh, but when assessing your protocol of nutrition and training, you just have wider time scales. You just allow for allow more time for things to happen that you know take time to happen. Um, because if you're doing everything uh too neurotically and too often you're reacting to things uh that are just reverberations in the data they're not not really what's happening so a good trainer needs to realize the limits of their tools uh they need to realize the limits of how quickly the human body can lay down changes to stimulus and just need to pick more calmer more spaced out times to analyze things uh, so that they don't get tripped up and tricked by just the the, the facilitudes of, of the human body and how it changes and how our, our tools that, that assess the human body uh, can be affected by those things. So just pick the right resolution to assess data, and I think you'll stay out of trouble. Well, when it comes to accounting for variables, if I had people in a laboratory for example, uh, I, uh, and even then you probably couldn't, I was going to say if you could train a prison population where you could follow them around and control them. And uh, I once asked Doug McGuff why it seemed that so many people in prison seemed to have these big physiques 
and whatnot. And I thought maybe they train really hard in there because maybe being stronger and bigger might be a matter of survival. Uh, but also he pointed out that a prison population likely has a higher testosterone level than the general population, which is why Definitely. some of them are prone to, to violence. But I, I, I digress there. Uh, some people I've heard trainers say, I don't really get into nutrition or diet or weight loss because I can control what clients do when they're with me once or twice a week for 30 or 40 minutes. But after they leave, getting them to follow a diet strictly, get enough sleep, do all these things. One, one of the things that I found, my clientele is probably 60%, well, maybe 50-50 now, men and women, but most of them are um, in their 60s and their 70s. That's the majority of my clientele. And one of the things, particularly with the women that I've realized is when I start to look at the various studies about how much protein people should eat, and particularly as we age, and we absorb protein not as effectively as when we once did, that uh, very few people um, are consuming nearly enough protein. And when I explain, particularly to women, well, they say, you know, I talk about so many grams and things like that, but then I try to explain, you know, at, at each meal, and what does that look like? What are examples of a meal that contains that? I often get these looks of like, oh, that's a lot of protein. Because they'll say, well, I eat protein. I woke up and I had a bagel and I put peanut butter on it. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or I had some cream cheese and a, and a bagel and, you know, one egg or something. Mm -hmm. and, so I know you had that experiment where you did the McDonald's thing. And I think what you were trying to prove is that at the end of the way, calories count. And yes. that regardless of what you eat. But when you did that, and also in, in line with this question, did you measure protein intake at the time? Or were you just eating enough meat that you didn't have to worry about it because you knew you were eating enough protein? And how much does protein, because it's hard to have protein synthesis with inadequate protein, I think. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. Like mo most of the science says uh, you need sufficient protein to repair and grow muscle. You can't make protein from other sources. So as a bare minimum, you need enough to repair your body and make some adaptations. It doesn't need to be crazy, but it, you can't have a diet devoid of protein that would put you in trouble. Um, so, but as far as carbs and fat, they're almost like interchangeable in some sense. Right. Um, so some people and some populations might run better without carbs. And I think for most of us, you know, pr processed carbs, especially are, are probably not a good idea. It seems if you sort of have a, a European background, you're probably more said, suited to, to sort of meat, dairy, veg, pretty simple stuff like that uh your asian southeast asian populations they seem to stay quite thin irrespective of the the amount of you know carbs they eat and rice and i think that's probably an adaptation to living with those uh staples for thousands of years um but in a sense as long as calories are controlled you've got enough protein to build muscle uh making up the balance of calories with carbs or either fat 
can help you get to where you want to. If you're having too many calories, you're going to add weight. If you have too few, you're going to lose weight. Um, too few protein, you're going to lose muscle and sufficient protein, uh, you'll be able to gain muscle uh, provided, you know, the training stimulus is adequate. Um, so that's kind of, you know, how, how I see it. Um, as for like when I did that McShredded diet, I guess you'd call it, um, I, I knew, uh, you know, I was eating a double quarter pounder each day and as well as a chicken salad from McDonald's. So but there's plenty of protein in there. There's more than enough to get the job done uh, with the balance coming from, you know, whatever carbohydrates were in, in the bread of that. Um, I'd have a, like a box of cookies, which is pretty trash, but I just did it for fun. And uh, I also have a McFlurry. So that has, you know, the, the ice cream, which is probably quite high in saturated fat, which is probably quite supportive of testosterone. Um, but obviously it is, is laden with, with sugar. Um, so I, I did do blood work when I did that. So my blood work was pretty healthy going in and it, it stayed stable uh, for the 50 days. But that's not a long study by, by any means. Um, and, and health's an interesting thing. So, so much of what being unhealthy is, is, is actually being fat is, is unhealthy. Like it, it sort of chokes out the organs of the body. It, it's almost like it sort of, it almost puts brakes on the body. It, it, it puts things in the blood that's, that make the blood lethargic itself. So although people like to sort of make this claim that you can be uh, fat and healthy, it's, it's not necessarily true. Um, doesn't mean you need to be like ultra lean and ripped either because you can be too lean and unhealthy and, and all sorts of configurations. But in general, you know, leaner people live longer. In general, people who consume less calories live longer. Um, those things are all absolutely true. So it's very difficult to say, insert someone like myself, I guess, who's sort of, I'm not bodybuilding competitively, but I'm training as if I'm wanting to hold enough muscle mass that I could be in a competition. Um, it's hard to say whether that's the most healthy thing to do either, you know, to, to hold. For me, I've, I've been able to pretty, I wouldn't say easily, but I'm genetically suited to, to putting on and holding big slabs of muscle. And it probably makes me inappropriately heavy um, for the full course of a life. So being above 100 kilos on, on a frame that's designed only to maybe have 80 kilos on it or 75 kilos on it uh, is going to bear a cost on my joints over time. So, you know, absolute muscle mass is not necessarily a health pursuit. Um, and I don't, I don't like to pretend it is, um, but it's probably healthier than being fat and lethargic with no muscle. So it's sort of, right, right. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fine compromise I'm willing to take. But if, if health was your absolute metric, you know, you would have a clean diet. You would eat no processed foods. You wouldn't have soft drink. You, you would try and uh, find... You know, you'd buy food from maybe local farmers that are growing organic stuff that doesn't have all sorts of strange chemicals in it. You would try and source meat from places that are grass-fed and finished, you know, so that it's not laden with too much saturated fat or intramuscular fat. Um, you do all of those things if you wanted to, like, absolutely max your health. Uh, but I, th I think the body's pretty forgiving, and I think if you keep relatively lean uh, and keep a good degree of muscle mass on your body, I think for most people... Uh, that can get them to what I guess their potential lifespan would be. I think the body's more forgiving than we give it credit for when it comes to diet. But again, it come, comes down to the person that there's always people like, I don't know what how masterful your, your diet is at home, but you look like someone who has always been naturally pretty lean. 
I don't know if I'm assuming things there. I've always been someone that can very quickly turn to fat if I don't very carefully monitor what I'm doing. You know, I'm always tend to, my natural state will lean towards being a little bit husky, having a pretty healthy layer of fat on my body. Um, and I, I don't actually eat all that much food either. So um, I'm probably that classic like endo mesomorph where easy to gain muscle, easy to gain fat. But I've had lots of clients that they can eat whatever they want and they stay, have peeled abs no matter what, but they might conversely have a little bit more trouble adding muscle mass. They can do it, like they can achieve it, but they definitely can't achieve it in the way I could. Um, and I've even had clients that are like sort of classic mesomorphs. So I remember I had a client, uh, Will, in London, and he, he was probably one of my favorite people as well as one of my favorite clients in terms of what he achieved. And, you know, he come in a couple of years past 40 um, and he just, he lost fat really easily following um, basically a keto diet, which he was sort of already doing, but he slapped on muscle. Like in the space of three months, he just, everyone in the gym was commenting. They're just like, mate, your boy's looking good. Like he just like, and for someone to slap on muscle post 40 is like a near miracle, but genetics matter so a lot of these things are uh sometimes you you get lucky with clients and they don't need to move the needle that much but if someone comes to you in a not a a bad state of health and they're clearly overweight at some point i think you need to sit down with them and say listen like this is not going to get you uh to the end of your potential lifespan and you're not going to enjoy the potential lifestyle you could if you're in a better state Um, and this is what would be required for you to make changes. Um, And I think one of the problems with training people in person is is that so much of the model centres around come in and I'll supervise your training and then I'll I'll let you free into the world. But a good trainer should account for... Give me a second. A good trainer should bring up some of those things about health and, and test whether the client is interested in achieving more than just coming in and hitting better numbers each week. Um, and they need to to pitch, uh, I guess, a greater duty of care. And they have to price in a greater duty of care as well. Like sometimes you, you need to sort of run a hybrid model where you're checking in with people daily with text messages and making sure they hit their diet properly um, so that they can uh, get their health back to a, a better position. So that's why you hear a lot about like online training, which focuses more around behavioural change, right. you know, teaching people to, to look after themselves at all times in the course of their lifestyle where the training might take more of a backseat um, at the end of the day. So a high intensity workout doesn't save people's lives. Like there's, there's a more encompassing approach that has to happen for people that uh, you know, their body fat and their health might be in a worse state of repair. It's a, it's a great first step. I mean, on the terms of obesity, uh, Peter Atia, I don't know if you've listened to some of his things. I don't agree with everything that he puts out, but he he made an interesting comment. He said, obesity is a protective mechanism. In other words, your body is laying down fat that because if it didn't, you would get into such an inflammatory state, not that being fat itself doesn't add inflammation. So sometimes I think if you were eating good, healthy, nutritious food, but just a lot of it, and more and you're in a caloric surplus and you gain fat again this is falls under i reserve the right to be full of it 
but I speculate that if you're eating just a lot of really good nutritious food, had a caloric surplus and put down fat, I think that's very different than somebody who is laying down fat as a result of consuming industrial seed oils and refined carbohydrates and, and a low protein diet and, and all those things. Because I think that the end result is you have two obese people and of course they would fall into that category which statistically would not live as long but i think that if you drill down further that the the one the former who got that way from simply caloric surplus of nutritional food while maybe not ideal i don't think would be uh in the same position as the second mm. person you know what i mean and yeah i mean I, i'm not probably a the the person who's an expert on that there'd probably be better people to to speak to on that what i would say is is often i think about how fat is distributed on a person's body and i, I always think you know especially when i work in in mining um you know what the diets can be like in some of these miners yeah. um and the job isn't often as physical as it used to be a lot of people are driving dump trucks all day and things like that and you'll see sometimes these young men who they have skinny arms, skinny legs, and they have these big pot bellies. And you, you just know sort of intuitively that that person's health must be in a real bad state to, to distribute fat like that. And one of the things I've noticed with myself, even when I, I get a little bit too husky, my fat's very evenly distributed. I've never, I don't sort of get a gut at the front. Everything's just kind of, you know, I'll get a bit fatty around the chest, around the arm, around the leg, around the bellies, around the sides, um, but very kind of even almost. Um, but you see these characters who clearly aren't exercising, they're drinking and smoking, eating to excess, eating a lot of processed food, eating pies and sausage rolls for lunch instead of, you know, something healthier. And you can see from the way their tummies are just growing out to the front and spilling forward whilst the rest of them looks like they're almost a, a different person. It's, it's like they have a fat person's tummy, but a skinny person's rest of the body. Um, something about that, I think indicates, you know, there's a, there's a hormonal problem. The, the diet and the lifestyle is so poor that it's manifesting, manifesting as like a, you know, this strange kind of fat distribution profile. Um, and I, I have sort of read some things that, that talk about how like fat distribution can be used to kind of assess different health conditions and, and what's going on. But that's definitely something I've sort of noticed out there in the field that just, yeah, that pattern of fat distribution distribution can sometimes be indicative of what you might, what I think you were describing, which is, you know, fat gained as a reaction to inflammation um, as a protective mechanism versus perhaps you're, you're living pretty healthy, but just maybe eating a touch too much and you're storing it as you would store it, you know, in preparation for winter, I guess. Right. Well, I did, I did the math, you know, if you're, if you graduate from high school at 18 and at 63, 45 years have gone by, uh, you can gain 65 pounds and, and I'm, Somebody listening to this may do the math. So I'm going from memory. So if I did the math wrong, but I think it was 65 pounds, that only comes to an additional 15 calories a day during those. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's a, it's frightening, a, isn't it? A, a few, a couple of pieces of chewing gum, right? Yeah, and, uh, no, absolutely. Chewing gum. So it can be very, and one of the things I've looked at stats of long term 
people who, who lose weight and keep it off. And the statistics are really quite dismal uh, <laughs> of people that, that, that do that. And I, I looked at this one article that said, you know, what are the habits of people who have lost weight and kept it off for five years or more? And there were a number of ones, but one of the ones that I sort of think I agreed it, it was called, if you bite it, write it. And in your previous podcast, you said, I pulled up my fitness pal. And, and, you know, when you talk about controlling variables, and when I point that out to people, and I, I say to my clients as I have those discussions, if you're not willing to track what you eat in some way, shape or form, and that could be maybe you don't like carrying around your phone and writing down what you eat, but you if on Sunday you do a whole bunch of cooking and put it in little freezer things that you know in advance, this is what I'm going to eat, some way, shape, or form of tracking what you eat, um, it, it's not going to work. Right? Mm. My, fa my father was a recovering alcoholic, and he used to say, quitting's easy. He'd say, not starting over, that's the hard part. Mm. And I think that applies to eating habits. And of course, people are inundated uh, by food, you know, temptation to various foods and, and the food industry. I, I don't think, you know, I don't subscribe to this idea that there are a bunch of malicious, evil people who are out to kill people. They just want to sell food. Mm. They're just doing their job. And so they advertise, they create foods that are ultra palatable and, and, and whatnot and, and don't fill you up very much so you can eat tons of it. And also, uh, those foods, the healthier foods, primarily what I think of as meat, I think meat should be a staple. I think you can be healthy on a veg vegetarian or vegan diet if you're incredibly meticulous. But meat is very forgiving, but that's also very perishable mm. and relatively expensive. Whereas, you know, the box stuff and whatnot is cheaper and tastier, it takes less time to prepare. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people fall prey to that. And it's really tough because, you know, when you quit drinking or doing drugs, you abstain completely. Mm. But with food, that's not really an option. No, but it's not. You're always going to be using your drug of choice, if you will. So, so have you found that uh, when you train people, long-term adherence in terms of manipulating variables and whatnot, has that been a challenge or have you got the secret to inspiring people or you just call call them on their bullshit and yeah like away with it it depends on the, on the client like a lot of my in-person clients were they're not really that that big to be honest a lot of them didn't really have a lot of problems with with body fat um which was a, a good thing to have some some did but like some are not really interested in that they're just happy to come train and don't want anything more I think when I was doing a more online training, like most of that is people that are looking to lose some pounds, they're looking to, to shape up. So um, again, it's just having systems um, and then just being prepared to call them out when they're, they're in violation of said systems. Um, and, you know, a good coach is not really there to be that person's friend. They're there to just keep reminding them to stay on the rails, keep reminding them that these are goals that they set uh, these are goals that they came to you with um, and your job's just to remind them that this is 
the only process you can really follow to get there. You know, you can't just wing it and rely on chaos because that's what got you fat in the first place. Um, so if you want to unwind these things, you have to install uh, these habits. And that includes monitoring accurately what you're putting in your mouth um, and then adjusting that amount down sufficiently such that you start trending in the direction you want to trend. Um, and I think for most people who are overweight, you know, they have to do that. Genetics aren't on their side. The environment is not on their side and it just requires good old fashioned conscientiousness, you know, be dutiful, follow the program. And like, I'm no different to that. If I want to lose body fat, um, I have to monitor everything I do very, very closely because it takes barely any food to get my weight up. Uh, I'm sort of, most people like when they want to put on muscle, they have to really like, they have, they think about bulking, like they go out and buy shakes and they, they, they think how annoying it is. They have to put all this extra food in their body. I'm fortunate or unfortunate in the fact that I've, I have to like restrict my calories down to probably like sub 2000, 1800 calories before body fat even thinks of <laughs> leaving my body, yeah. um, which to most people, that number is like eating like a bird. It's, it's barely any food, but that number in terms of me getting in shape, getting cut is pretty consistent when I look at my data. So um, if I want it, I have to do what's required. If you want it, you have to do what's required. Um, and tracking your data consistently is the only way for you to gain any insight about what's actually happening. So you can't, you can't just wing things and change things based on no information. Um, that'll get you into trouble. Uh, you can't just say, oh, eat once a day and it'll work out because I can tell you right now, I, I often only eat once a day and I can eat more than enough to uh, get my body weight up in, in, in one meal. So, um, you know, it's, it's often um, like anything, it comes down to the individual, but you always have to do what is required. And for some people that requires a gargant gargantuan effort. For others, it doesn't take much at all. Um, but that's, that's the art of being a trainer is just learning to motivate people to stick to their goals, um, and to keep reminding them why it was important for them to achieve this. So I think you know, that's the, it in a nutshell. The aha that I had from what you said, when, and just now when you said stick to their goals is often an in-person training, people are coming to you to have you help them strength train. They may come mm. to you thinking that that will result in and of itself in weight loss, because a lot of people think, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll join a gym or whatever, get a trainer and I'll lose weight. But they're, they're hoping to do it with exercise. So when they hear the news that, um, you know, the, the exercise alone isn't going to do it, that it's primarily diet as far as weight loss. You're kind of like, oh, okay, well, all right, I'll have to think about that. Whereas if you're doing online training and you put yourself out there as a body recomposition tool, then the people coming to you are coming to you already with the expectation that diet will be part of the deal. So you've got yeah. sort of willing subjects coming in you're not having them come in and after the fact say okay now you've been strength training for a while now i want to add another component which is not going to be nearly as much fun if you will <laughs> not that the training is fun it's going to require you to really get serious about that 
But, and at the end, I mean, as you say, uh, HIIT training alone won't save your life, but it's a pretty great first step. Um, and often it'll start to get people thinking about those things and eventually progress. So from the time that you did the interviews with Lawrence, I'm gonna steal a page out of Lawrence's as he often says nearing the end of an interview. What, if anything, have you changed your mind about? over the years i i honestly think i intuited very early on that if i took care of my strength with a cadence i would steer my muscle mass in the right direction and i honestly think the interim years between because because when i think about it i've been keeping a training log and i've been executing a cadence for as long as I can remember in my training, you know, I've, I've had the sheet of paper in front of me. And from about 21, I've been pretty locked in about cadence. Um, and I've been running that sort of basic double progression metric that whole time. Um, it's only maybe the recent years I've put the logbook away, but I've been on a bush job for the last sort of 18 months or two years and I'm like sleeping in a caravan on a bunk bed out in the bush and my gym is literally a set of adjustable dumbbells in the dirt with a safety step for a bench um, so I only recently just got back into a mine site job where I've got a proper gym so I'll get the logbook out again which will be nice but I've, I've had to be working out in the dirt for quite a while now and that's the only break I've had from keeping a logbook just because it you know just became too difficult or I just couldn't be bothered um, but I don't think I've changed my mind. I think I've just become more crystal clear about my intuitions. And I think, uh, I wouldn't say I've shaped the science to back up my intuitions, but I think I got it right with my training very early on. And I think the science has enough clues to back up my view of everything. And I would just say I've become increasingly more clear about it. Um, what I do think is I think training protocols should be simpler than they ever used to be for me when I first started. They require less change of exercise than when I first started. Uh, less variability, less intensity techniques. So like when you first start high intensity training, I think, especially if you've come from the Mensa tradition, um, everyone's obsessed with like the, the best high intensity training advanced technique and everyone wants to use advanced techniques. And the longer I've trained, the more I've just wanted bread and butter. Uh, I've realized that, you know, doing triple rest pause and doing pre-exhaust and all those things are just noise. They're, they're all things that get in the way of good data, just right. going to regular plain old failure where you can't complete another rep with good form uh, is sufficient to, to produce data, which you can adjust your protocol to over time. Uh, you don't need anything advanced to get it moving. You just need to practice your fundamentals more soundly. Um, so that's probably the biggest change. I just, I don't use any advanced techniques at all. I don't care for them. I don't think they add anything. Um, you're better off adding an extra rest day permanently between workouts. If your pro progression stalled, then you are adding an intensity technique because all an intensity technique is going to do is, is throw a spanner in the works in terms of the, the consistency of your data and strength, strength metrics. 
So that I'd say I've been pretty fixed for a long time. I've just become better at understanding what I'm doing, more nuanced about sort of understanding all the tiny little things that can introduce noise in your training. So I just understand form a lot better. And the only thing I can really think of that I've changed my mind on is advanced techniques. I don't rate them. I think they're silly. I think it's just posturing and signaling. Um, I mean, I'm sure it can be fun for clients. And I would say like drop sets or like, what are they called? Like I call it triple rest pause, but you know, where you're trained to failure, take six breaths, train to failure, take six breaths, train to failure. That's very good for teaching beginners how to push themselves. Right. Uh, but once they can push themselves in one effort on an exercise, they can just do that. Yeah. Uh, so I've just, I think I'm returned think, to absolute basics. I think you're describing what is increasingly a trend in the, in the hit community. If I'm not sure I like that term, but just a final question on the word double and double progression. So finally, first of all, let me make sure I understand what I'm asking. So when I think of double projection, I think of back the old Nautilus is, you know, when you, if you do, once you can do 12 reps, they used to use two, four, whatever the number of reps, then you increase the weight by 5%, which probably will bring you down to eight or nine reps. And you stay at there until you can do 12 again and continue. I, I will admit that I don't do that. I do more of microloading, where I'm staying pretty much at the same number of reps or time under load, what have you and then increase very, very slightly so that the rep range, am I missing out on something you think? Because of course, by default or by design, when you're doing uh, double progression, then you're fluctuating between lower reps or time under load and higher reps at various times. Uh, is Do you think that's um, splitting hairs does make that much difference? I think it, it absolutely is splitting hairs. I think we're doing the same thing by different means. Um, I just find double progression to be very simple and it's easy to work with gym equipment that way. So uh, double progression is just, uh, you have a prescribed rep range uh, in which you achieve failure with a certain cadence. Um, for me, it's sort of, I like the Mensa figures of say like six to 10 for upper body, 12 to 20 for lower body. And then it's just a case of once they escape that upper rep range, uh, just move the weight up by probably the, the, the smallest practical amount. And that's usually just going to the next set of dumbbells or moving the pin the next step. Um, and like you said, it usually knocks you back down lower into the rep range and then you just work yourself through it again. Once you escape it, you bump up the weight and uh, that's fine. And, and micro loading, if you've got the tools, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of achieving the same thing. But like I said, I'd rather just fix the load for a period of time and look at just the reps until the reps achieve what I want them to achieve and then just adjust the load and then start again. To me, in my head, that seems more straightforward um, and, and more empirical. Whereas when you just adjust the load arbitrarily with a sort of rep range, I think you're you're making a guess that the client can maybe achieve that. Um, whereas the rep is them demonstrating them advancing past a certain threshold. Right. Uh, but again, it does sound like splitting hairs. Yeah. Like it, it's just a different means of achieving the same thing. It's all, it's all progression in strength uh, with a, with a slight augmentation of, of how you go about the proxy and how you go about progression. 
So I wouldn't I wouldn't get bogged down on it to be honest. Pick pick one and stick to it. Don't bounce back and forth between different things. The kiss principle. Keep it simple. Absolutely, um, and that's definitely like I've moved towards almost puritanical simplicity in my training. Um, but I think I think with things like controlling cadence and, and technique uh, in the high intensity training fashion. Uh, the metaphor I use is it's sort of like, it's like minimalism in architecture. Uh, achieving a minimalist building uh, in architecture is probably the most complex and expensive process in the world because it requires an understanding of, of so many things to achieve that facade of simplicity. Um, so teaching someone to control all the elements of form, which I don't know if I'm to break them down, you've got like posture, path of motion, range of motion, speed of motion, uh, going to failure. Like it's it's a complex skill set to achieve a consistent technique uh, within a set, within your workout and between workouts. Uh, that's, that's a, it's a very, very hard skill to develop. It is developable, it is teachable. Uh, if you're a good trainer, you can teach it very quickly and you get better and better over time at teaching it as you see more people and come up with, with more novel ways to kind of get people uh, to achieve that technique. But once you've kind of set that up, your training then does become highly bread and butter. It's right. just a few, few select exercises. Uh, depending on the protocol, it'll be anything from five to 15 exercises per week max. Um, on average, you're probably only doing 10 exercises across two workouts with the average client. And you don't need to change those exercises around much. Um, in fact, you shouldn't. Um, my, my basic thing is there should be three or fixed exercises in every workout that never change across the lifetime of that person if you can help it. So you should have like a primary pushing exercise, which might be like a chest press, uh, a primary back exercise, which might be like a pull down and a primary leg exercise, which might be the leg press. And you should keep those things in their workout at the start of the workout as the first exercise for that muscle group uh, in every workout forever. It's, it's like a constellation. It's a North star. They're, they're the basic movements um, and you should keep them the same. The second you change them out for a new machine or change the order around too dramatically, then you have to rebuild a new data set. You're not comparing apples with apples. So I'm very, uh, like I said, just almost puritanical in my simplicity I don't like to change things around too often. Um, that can sometimes be a tension with what clients enjoy. I definitely know that a lot of clients prefer novelty. I think the average person prefers much more novelty than what the average high-intensity trainer would want to give them. Um, but I think there's ways to work around that. If you have to make a compromise from a business perspective, keep those three fixed exercises, primary push, primary pull-down, primary leg, never, ever change them that's it because you're relying on them those three things can tell you everything you need to those, know tactically those are and then they're foundational exactly and then if you need to add a bit of variety chop and change the the bicep exercise chop and change the tricep exercise you know chop and change the ab exercises the right. things that aren't of such primary to, importance to use to follow your architecture uh, analogy it's like that's the foundation the rest is like window dressing a hundred percent yeah in which you know some of those exercises probably if you didn't do them at all might not matter a whole mm. lot right if you get stronger yeah. in those three uh you know a lot of things are going to follow 
I appreciate you very much taking your time today and uh, this morning, and you're just beginning your day. I'm just ending mine. Mm. But uh, it's been great. I enjoy uh, talking about this, and, and hopefully maybe we can do this again in the future. I'll send you an email so that if you want to provide any contact information or anything for people to find out more, uh, you can uh, provide that, and I'll include that. Um, and uh, I will wish you a wonderful Saturday and the rest of your weekend, sir. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I'd happily come on any time you like. Oh, I greatly appreciate it. Bye for now. Bye.